everybody. But uh, all kidding aside, and I, uh, I looked, on, looked up the church on the internet and I saw Brother Hooker's face and I almost had a heart attack. I mean, uh, not that he's that ugly, although he's, you know, but uh, I hadn't seen him in about 10 years. I taught at Dr. Howe's school. Some of you may know, some of you may not give a flip, probably most of you don't give a flip, but from 86 to 96, I taught there full time. Was a student in, 80, in 76 to 81. Uh, then I went to Idaho and started a church and was out there five years, then came back at Brother Howe's request to teach. That's when I, you know, ran into Brother Hooker. And he and I were pretty good friends. I mean, we were, we were both kind of maverick, uh, you know, pushing up against the stream kind of guys. And he was a good ally for me because we were always trying to watch Brother Howe's back. Well, all politics, you get in a big place. And we were very good friends. And uh, I remember him showing me that famous photograph when he's in that boxing ring looking at that guy in the corner of the ring. He, he, Bob's got his hands on his hips staring at him, trying to see if, he can, if he's still alive or not, you know, to help him out. And Brother Bob's hair would do was out like this. And he's quite a character. But uh, I'll tell you a nice story about uh, Brother Hooker. I was in, um, I preached in 10 churches in, uh, uh, where was I, uh, Virginia and Maryland about two weeks ago. 10 churches right in a row uh, every night for about 12 nights. And uh, the best, the biggest church of the bunch was a big work in uh, Chesapeake, Mar uh, Chesapeake, Virginia. Uh, and I forget the name all of a sudden now, but the pastor's name is Nettleson. And I go sitting down eating, eating with him at the restaurant, and I said, how'd you get saved? He said, well, I used to be in the sailor ministry. No, I used to be in the, uh, at the uh, Great Lakes Naval Station there at boot camp, and a bus came and picked me up, bring me to a place called First Baptist Church. And uh, I got saved that night. And he's, he's building a 16,000 square foot building. That'll tell you what kind of work he's got going out there. But uh, here's the crazy part. So he told me all that, uh, I don't know, the next day he came to pick me up for lunch and Brother Hooker called into my motel room, returned my call after I tried to reach him about maybe coming here. He returned the call as I'm going down the elevator just about to meet that pastor out in the, you know, the vestibule area, sitting in his car under the thujigger thing, you know, right in the front door area. And I'm walking out talking to Brother Hooker. And I said, and I said to the preacher, I said, hey, and he hadn't talked to Brother Hooker in 10, 15 years or longer. And he said, he probably don't even know me, you know. I said, you know that guy, Nettleson? Oh, yeah, I heard of him. I walk out of the hotel and I said to the preacher, I said, hey, somebody wants to say hello to you. And I handed the phone to him. He had no clue who it was. And it was Brother Hooker, his spiritual father in so many ways. And, man, you know, they had a wonderful time. So, you know, your pastor, of course, has a zillion uh, connections around the country with his influence. And you know that. But he did give me a long list to cover, uh, making sure I got everything down here. Uh, <laughs> But don't mind me, I'm a little punch drunk. I was in uh, my home in uh, Maryville, Tennessee yesterday, or what is it, today's, today's Sunday? Uh, yesterday I was there, and I drove to Paragold, Arkansas. Anybody ever hear of that crazy place? It's right next to Gooberville. <laughs> Did you know that it's next to Gooberville? How many think I'm kidding? I almost ran off the road when I saw the sign. I almost backed up to take a picture of it, Gooberville. And that's what they call peanuts in World War One or World War Two, one of the others, and they uh, they nicknamed it Gooberville, you know, because the, they were peanuts. Moving right along here, I, I, so I, I so the, that's where I drove last night. So this morning at 10 o'clock, I preached in Paragold at a church, blew out of there 100 miles an hour, drove to Truman, Arkansas, preached there at 2:30, and uh, 
and then blew out of there and came up here and pulled into the front gate here at uh, 558 and uh, to preach here. And I'm going to overnight, and if I li live tomorrow morning, I'm going to go to Greenbrier, uh, Arkansas, for, for a camp meeting on uh, whatever it is, Monday and Tuesday. Then I'm supposed to preach someplace else Wednesday. That's not confirmed. I don't know where that is. Then I got to go from there to Asheville, North Carolina, Thursday night and Friday night, and then over to Charlotte, Statesville, two different churches on Sunday. Then I get to stagger home on Monday. Whew. Anyhow, so that's why I'm a little punch, punchy up here, but I'll be all right. Uh, just uh, prop me up, prop me up against the jukebox when I die. Amen. <laughs> all right. Anyhow. I'm really glad to be here, though, and it was awfully nice of Brother Bob to, I hope I don't misrepresent him calling him that, but we are all good friends for a long time, and I think the world of him, and it's a nice thing he's going on a cruise, and uh, of course, you know, you folks got it made in the shade if you, if you keep him alive. Most of you should know him. He's just as good a man as there is. Amen. You know, he really is, and so I'm thankful for you uh, that the church keeps rolling on, right? So anyhow... Listen, when I was here last time, if I remember right, the, the book table was like the last helicopter out of Vietnam, I mean, the way everybody hit it. So I'm not worried about selling books tonight, but I do have to uh, tell you what I am doing. Since I was here last time, I, so, I wrote three new books. That's how long it's been. But uh, I wrote a book. You, most of you have Final Authority or, and What Hath God Wrought. That, that Final Authority came out 25 years ago this year in March. But in 2005, I wrote this crazy book called How Satan Turned America Against God. And uh, this is the craziest book you'll ever read. Uh, the most uh, famous scientist in the 20th century just about wrote the, wrote the afterword to this book, five pages at the back of the book to recommend it. Uh, he, he, invented, he invented the neutron bomb, uh, for instance, in 1958. So he's, his name is Sam Cohen. And this is a book about how God, and he's a Jewish atheist, but it's a pro-Israel book and he wanted to help me get the book out. But anyway, uh, it, it, it's a, a book about how God set America up through our Baptist ancestors in Virginia with the Bill of Rights and all these different things most Christians have never heard. But anyway, and then how Satan has dismantled the, uh, the country in the meantime. Have about 30 pages on Mr. Clinton in here and uh, your next door neighbor and a lot of things that have gone down uh, under the table. So anyway, it's a quite an unusual book, 1,000 pages, 100 photographs, and it's uh, $40 on Amazon on the internet, here's the barcode, but back there on the table, it's $20. Now, my material is extremely politically incorrect. When God led me to start writing, he never told me nobody would want to promote it for me. So I had to write it and then run around, look like a snake oil salesman, shaking hands like a missionary, like the old joke goes, you know, and, you know, going into churches to sell the books because no one else will sell them for me. Uh, Final Authority, we got 50,000 copies sold so far without a, uh, distributors, you know. The material's too inco incorrect for the uh, average brother. So uh, Jack, Jack Howes used to say, a lie can go around the world three times while truth is putting its boots on. So good news moves slowly, okay? And then in 2010, I wrote an amazing book for good out there on the King James Bible, the second book called Given by Inspiration. That's sitting on the table out there, 300 pages paperback. That's a spiritual book. Uh, you know, Final Authority is very technical. Uh, how, how the King James Bible came into existence. Given by inspiration will teach you how to understand the Bible. And it's very, uh, a very popular book with Christians if you look at it out there on the table. That's $20. What if God wrought is off the table because we're getting ready to have that reprinted. But uh, this is the main reason I'm, I'm here tonight. Uh, this, is the, th this is volume one, How Satan Turned America Against God. 
in the series called An Understanding of the Times. This is volume two. That was six years to write, so is th this was six years. Uh, my son is a sheriff's deputy in Blunt County, Tennessee, and he did a uh, time study on the book just for fun, and he came up with 18,000 hours. Now, I'm only telling you that so you'll realize if you get the thing, you know, you'll enter into my labors. That, uh, that's how long it took to write this thing. And I uh, had a major heart attack when I was in the finishing stretch because you can't do stuff like this without running into the devil head on. And, uh, but anyway, uh, it's $30 on Amazon, there's the price. But I sell them, again, when I'm at the church, it's for $20. So if somebody told you they would uh, work for you for 18,000 hours and they just wanted one paycheck of $20, you know what that is? Look. <laughs> so, uh, you know, if you go on Amazon, look on your little phone, put four words in there, Holy Ground, Grady, Amazon, four words. You'll come up with the 24 reviews that are on Amazon now for the book, and every review is five stars. And it's batting a thousand so far. That's how good God's been. So anyway, again, it's something to help you. Uh, the books are $20 out there. Any book is $20 or any three for 50. And if you get this book, you know, in the uh, final authority, you can get this $40 book for 10 more dollars. I mean, I'm trying to get, make, get rich. You know, the, you use the book for a doorstop if you have to, it weighs 20 pounds. But uh, if you're a widow lady tonight, please come by the book table and take a copy of the new book. Uh, just to, no charge, you just pray for me. No, uh, you know, no grandstanding intended. But if, no widows, you gotta be a widow indeed, no wannabes. And uh, now look, folks, let me, get, let me tell you the good news and the bad news. The bad news is you're slow. <laughs> Say, what's the good news? You're faster than they were in Arkansas. <laughs> Both services. I'm, like they say in Tennessee, I'm a telling you, neighbor. <laughs> so, uh, uh, any, and listen, this is a crazy world, man. I had a guy come up to me at my book table in some place last two, two months somewhere. Preacher, he told me he identified as a widow. <laughs> and he wanted a free book. This world's going crazy, man. Now, I'm going to speak on this subject tonight. This is a history of the state of Israel, the modern state of Israel, not the history of the Jews. I mean, Christians, you know, they love Israel, love the Jews, but they don't know, how, have no clue, any clue how everything came into existence. You know, the West Bank, the occupied territories, and Balfour Declaration. You hear all this stuff, you don't know what it means. Well, I spent 18,000 hours putting it down line upon line. 200 photographs and maps, so you can learn. And you know, one of the greatest quotes, I taught in a college for 10 years, but one of the greatest quotes I ever heard, I read about was Mark Twain. He said, I never let my schooling interfere with my education. Isn't that good? You know, Harry S. Truman never went to college, and he photographed, and he's the number one advocate for the state of Israel in 1948. Any picture you have of him in his office, he's got stacks of books on his desk, stacks one of the most self-educated men there ever was. So you can learn on your own if you want to learn some things. And if, you don't get the, and if you don't get the book for any other reason, and by the way, this is a second printing. It just came out in April, and the book is as up-to-date as a photograph here of the Donald sitting there at his desk with his Jewish son-in-law, Jared Kushner, right here. That's how fresh the book is. But this is already a second printing. Got rid of the first 5,000, we got another 5,000. So God's blessing the book. It's, Israel's the apple of his eye, and God wouldn't get mad at you if you showed him you were a little interested in what he's doing. Like in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. God wants to find out if you give a flip about what he's doing, right? 
And if you don't get the book for any other reason, this is Tennessee, right? Well, at least you'll find out where the largest statue of Elvis is. <laughs> Glory to God, this is Memphis, isn't it? Well, there's the largest statue of Elvis Presley in the world, brother. It's 16 feet tall. There it is. Bronze, 16 feet tall. See it? Where is that statue at? One mile outside of Jerusalem in an Arab village called Abu Ghush. There it is, and preacher of my lion, there's four Israeli Elvis impersonators standing in front of the statue, and the, th and the third one in from the left's a woman. <laughs> that statue is standing in front of a 1950s hamburger joint, tourist ripoff trap, called the Elvis Inn, right there. I mean, how could you make up something like that? And, uh, you know, the, so why is, that, why is that? Why do they love Elvis Presley in Israel? Well, the New York Times had an article that said Elvis's great-great-great-grandmother was Jewish. Did you miss that L, this stuff? You missed L. Elohim, El Shaddai, how much time he got? L, this. What was his middle name? I forget. The high priest of Israel? I forget. Aaron? Okay. Anyhow, uh, and listen, if you really want something bizarre, the afterword in this book was not Sam Cohen, but it was a Sam. How many of you remember the son of Sam? David Berkowitz, the 44 caliber killer. Remember him? He's the guy who was shooting people in 1976 because a dog was talking to him, telling him to kill the people in New York. You know, he was in a satanic cult. His mind was shot. Jewish, Berkowitz. So what do you got him in there for? He got saved about 25 years ago, and he's been witnessing, and Larry King interviewed him, and Larry King's suspenders about popped off when he told Larry King that he was trusting Christ as his Savior. Uh, they interviewed him from prison. It's a wild story, and he gave me, I've, I've visited him three times in person. He gave me his permission, written permission to print his testimony for Jewish readers. You want to try to witness to some Jews, give him a copy of this book, and his testimony is called Son of Hope, and it's a powerful thing, I'm telling you. It's interesting. So I don't know what keeping up with the Kardashians have, but I don't think they can touch what God's people experience in, a, in an off week. Amen? All right, if you have your Bibles, turn over to Romans uh, chapter number 11. By the way, I'm glad to use uh, debit cards tonight. A lot of sales that way. People glad to find, uh, find out somebody helped like that. Checks are okay. Cash is okay. But thank you for letting me make this commercial. But I am working my mother through college. Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Now, it's, uh, I told Brother, uh, Brother Hooker what I was going to preach on tonight. He was excited about it because there's a, there's a very, there's a plague. Are you listening, neighbor? Going across this country in independent, King James only, soul winning Baptist churches. A plague of anti-Semitism. It's brand new. It's only been out two or three years in our movement. It's coming out of Tempe, Arizona, where I'll be preaching in about two weeks. Uh, a, some nut that was at Howells Anderson College for three years and then dropped out, and he's got a movement starting. And am I right? He, they've got preachers. Listen, that, that, that crazy guy, uh, Westboro Baptist Church, remember him? You know, your, your kid's in hell, you know, God hates fags. Remember that crazy guy? And, and uh, he caused a lot of bad publicity for the Baptist because it was Westboro Baptist, but he was all by himself. Then he died and went off the scene. This nut has got a following now. And he's, he's got satellite churches jumping up all over the place. They'll come into a church service, 20, 30 people, disrupt the thing. It is the craziest thing you've ever seen. What are they teaching? 
They're teaching the main to uh, Catholic doctrine of the Middle Ages, uh, uh, nicknamed or kind of known as uh, replacement theology. I'm sure some of you have heard that now. And that means that the church has replaced Israel. And the bottom line is God's mad at the Jews for crucifying his son. Matter of fact, he's miffed, caught off guard, you know. You know, the old, you know, someone said it ever occurred to you that nothing occurs to God, but Anderson never heard that or figured that out. So God supposedly was blown away when they rejected his son, you know. And then he took all the promises that were made to the Jews and shifted them over to a brand new organization called the church. And we are now Israel. We've taken, we've taken their place. We've replaced them. And God's totally done with that Jew. That's the main teaching. Then they got a whole bunch of other junk that goes with it, like uh, Holocaust denial. Holocaust didn't happen. And uh, all this stuff. And, the, and no pre-trib rapture. You know, if we're Israel, certainly we're going to be in the tribulation then. Did you know that? And you're going in. And uh, repentance is a bad word. And America is the great whore in Revelation, Revelation 17. The only nation, it's the only government in modern times that's been built on freedom of conscience. And yet we're the ones drunken with the blood of the martyrs, you know, calling the great whore uh, the United States rather than Rome the traditional position of all Christians for a thousand years. So, I mean, it just got a hundred thousand crazy ideas. Every time you turn around, this, this pervert's putting new stuff out. But it's spreading. So all you men in the church, especially, you want to be a good leader here in a Baptist work, uh, no clergy and lady, we're all brethren with just deacons and bishops kind of leading the thing, but we're all on the same, on the ground. So the pastor needs you to know what's going on. Amen. Not just be here because you're supposed to go to church, but to know what's going on. And this is a very precarious time, okay? So what I want to know is if the Apostle Paul uh, ever got any of Stephen Anderson's uh, DVDs. And let's find out. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 11. Did the Apostle Paul ever learn anything from Stephen Anderson? Is God done with the Jews? See? What's the first verse in Romans 11? I say then, hath God cast away His people? There it is. See it? Is He done with the Jews? It's written in 60 A.D. now. Look at the inspired answer, Christian. God, what? Forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. First thing Paul says is, if God's done with the Jews, how in the world did I ever get saved? Verse 2. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Hello. Watch ye not what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. First thing to spot right there, real quick, you're going to be astute and know what's going on. The whole baloney argument over here is God kind of got caught off guard and got miffed at them for messing with his son, so God dissed Israel. You understand? Do you see what you just read? Back in the time of Elijah, all God had was 7,000 Jews being willing to be faithful out of millions. Anybody ever remember the uh, golden calf, Moses and Aaron? In other words, God or Jehovah, the God of Israel, never had anything but a smattering or a remnant of those Jews that were willing to be faithful to him. It's always been that way. So, when, so watch this. When they rejected his son, he didn't take a baby aspirin. <laughs> Nothing new. Look at the next verse. Verse 5. Even so then at this present time also there is a remnant. 
30 years into the church age now, according to the election of grace. There's only a small number of Jews being faithful now. Nothing has changed. Stephen Anderson is a nut with a capital N. Jump down to verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. That's the best description right there of that whole movement. They're wise in their own conceits. Watch the mystery now that they're ignorant of. That blindness, meaning spiritual blindness, look, 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 what? In part has happened to Israel. First thing he tells you is it's partial blindness. In other words, if it was total blindness, no Jews could get saved. So some are getting saved, right? But look at here, look at the next word. Until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Second great truth sitting there, not only partial blindness, but what other kind of blindness? It's temporary. It's not permanent. It's a blindness, look, until the fullness of the Gentiles becoming. In other words, when the last Gentile is going to be saved that God knows about, then bingo, into the tribulation things go, church age ends, and seven years later they get rescued at the end of the tribulation by the Lord. Here's the verse that tells you that. Verse 26, And so all Israel, what? Shall be saved out in the future. As it is written, There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. That's Jesus showing up at the end of the tribulation period to rescue the one-third remnant that's still alive. See that all Israel shall be saved? Then, you know what that means? That means ethnic Israel, in other words, people that are literally Jews but don't reject, but reject Christ, but they're Jewish in ethnicity, are going to join, are going to get converted and be joined together with spiritual Jews or the saved Jews, which Paul calls in Galatians 6, the Israel of God. All Israel shall be saved one day, not just a small remnant, right? Verse 27, for this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. That's future. Now I've got a hundred and couple of hundred verses of scripture in the new book. The, the most important verse in the whole book, in my opinion, is verse 28. Take a good look at it. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election... They are beloved for the Father's sakes. Let's pray. Father, we love you. I thank you for the privilege of standing in this pulpit and be, being able to stand in for my good friend of 30 years, a, a, one of the most sought of the, I remember the night he took me over to see his mama. I mean, 30, 40 years, I don't know, 30 years ago. Sat at the kitchen table, fellowship with his mother. What a pleasant memory. Uh, Lord, I'm, I'm thankful that you, uh, you look like you... Uh, Shined, looked down and shined on this church. All, a, lot of, a lot of battles and burdens and nightmares the churches are going through. Sure looks like you looked after this place somehow. I pray you'll bless Bob and Joe Beth and give them good health and a good, a good honeymoon cruise or anniversary cruise. And bless this church for, uh, for standing with him and trying to do what's right in these wicked, nutty days. Lord, may this be a, a good night tonight. And bless the church and give them insight. That's it, especially the men. And we'll thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Keep your Bible open. I want you to look at that verse 28. That's got two amazing things sitting in there. Is there, is there some water? That's my water. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Uh, uh, they had a hepatitis outbreak in Paragold uh, now. And a preacher had to take me up to the Jonesboro to get something to eat. It wasn't safe to eat in Paragold last night. I'm going to get out of here. Go back to, to Merrillville. Amen. <laughs> 
Hey, how many of you know where Cades Cove is? Amen. That's 29 miles from my front door. Glory to God. Not bad for somebody who grew up in New York. Amen. I'm, I'm ending on, in high cotton. Amen. When I was a little kid in New York. We, I remember seeing a blade of grass sticking out of the crack of the sidewalk. My friend said, hey, look, we're out in the country today. <laughs> I'm a telling you, neighbor. Now look at verse 28. There's two amazing things staring at you out of that verse. The first one is a, uh, a, 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 an optical illusion. First time I read that verse to my wife, who was my proofreader and, and uh, editor, I misquoted it to her. I, mis I misread it myself. <clears throat> i got to be smarter than you, so most of you would have made the same mistake. Amen? And when I read that verse, I thought it was talking about their beloved for the what? For the Father's sake. See the verse? When I read that quick. But my wife said, hey, dummy, which she would never say in front of you, of course, but she said, hey, dummy, <clears throat> she said, take a look at that. All you homeschool moms look at it with your grammar. She said, that's not capital F apostrophe S. It's lowercase f, S apostrophe. So that's not talking about their beloved for the Father, see, as in God the Father. It's talking about the fathers of Israel, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because of the promises that God made to those Jews, those, I mean, those patriarchs, that nation is still beloved despite all the baggage it has. Now, there's a second thing in that verse that's incredible. You'd call it a conundrum. A conundrum is a 37-cent word for a puzzle or mystery or riddle, something you can't figure out. Let me explain. I was over in uh, Texas the entire month of April preaching. One, of the, one, one time I was, uh, I was preaching in San Antonio, Texas, Faith Baptist Church, Pastor Mike Morton. Last time I was there, eight, nine years earlier, he had uh, put me in an RV that was, you know, uh, on the, on the uh, church property, you know, to spend, a, you know, the, the week there, brand new RV they just bought for missionaries. Hey, the first night I was there, everything was pretty cool, Saturday night. Then I preached all day Sunday, and Sunday night I'm in that thing, and, and I'm at the back end in the bedroom there, and I was talking to my wife, and I gave her a good night kiss, good night, honey, and uh, put the phone down on the nightstand about a foot and a half from my head, amen. You know how small those things can be. And then I went into the land of Nod. <laughs> Amen. Seven o'clock or so I got up, you know, to use the potty. Is that okay to say? <laughs> Is that okay? I mean, that's better than saying to go tee tee. Amen. <laughs> I mean, who knows what you can say anymore? I don't know. I went to the potty. Amen. It's normal. Amen. And when I went out the rest into the RV, hey, the whole joint was ransacked. My papers were thrown everywhere. My clothes were all over the place. Television's gone. I ran back there as fast as our old rabbit to call the police. Couldn't call the police. Phone was gone. I'm a foot and a half from my head. And every night as you lay down, angels are camping all around. You ever hear that song? Hey, that's pretty cool. Hey, the Mexican policeman that came over, 25 years on the force, probably a lost Catholic man, he's doing a police report later with me and the preacher there. He was so shook up, he was mad that we were as calm as we were as Christians, you know. But he got so dramatic, he grabbed his pen and he slammed it into the, sideways into his pad like that, drama-wise, and he said, you two men ought to both get down on your knees and thank God that he didn't wake up. And he pointed at me when he said that. Then he took us to the back of the RV and showed us the two sets of footprints, busted out window, and his theory was that there was some Katrina transplants. They had moved them around the country after that storm, and it was crime wave was 
blowing through the roof wherever they showed up, and that's what they assumed happened. Now, look, if, if I would have woke up, that guy would have sent me into another dispensation, or guys. So they're obviously my enemies. At least I had to buy a new phone, amen? But how could they be beloved, the two? Did you read what that verse said about you and that Jew? God told you that Jew is your beloved enemy. That's the title of my 19th chapter in the book where the whole thing pivots. Did you see that? Or did it fly over your head? As concern, verse 28, as concerning the gospel, they are what? Enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are what? Beloved for the Father's sakes. That's a conundrum. They are, they are a beloved enemy of the body of Christ today. So what does that mean, Brother Grady? Hello, if the ACLU had its way, they would shut this church down in a New York minute. If it wasn't for the Bill of Rights that's been in place because of your Baptist ancestors there in, in Orange County, Virginia, that set the Bill of Rights up with, with James Madison. Do you know who runs the, bill, the ACLU tonight? A Jewish lesbian, atheist woman. And 80% of her top attorneys are Jews. Every secular person in the world knows that. It's the Christians sometimes will behind the scenes on some of this stuff. That's what Paul says. They're your enemies. But God made a bunch of promises to those patriarchs. He's going, he's going to fulfill those promises. So even though they're messed up and they put Christ on the cross and they closed this church down tomorrow if they could, they still are beloved. Present tense, are beloved. What are you going to do with that verse? Now, I've preached this sermon hundreds of times, I guess, in two years, always somewhere preaching it. I can preach it in my sleep, and every time I get to this part, it slows down out there, and the light bulbs start humming. Can I get a witness? Hey, all those in favor of gun control, raise your right hand. Okay. They say, Brother Grady, I can understand Mr. Hitler saying bad things about God's children, but you sound like you're starting to talk that way. Give me a few more minutes. I haven't gotten started yet. <laughs> Anybody ever hear of, uh, okay, are most of you folks for the uh, traditional marriage? Most of you Adam and Eve people, I hope. Yeah. Don't raise your hand if you're not. Well, the official position of the, the government tonight is Adam and Steve. Now, you understand that, right? Everybody's talking about the Supreme Court lately. You know, three years ago, the Supreme Court voted five to four against Adam and Eve. Shot down traditional marriage. Thank you very much. Elvis has left the building. How'd that happen? Well, I just gave you the verse that told you how it happened. What did the Holy Spirit tell you? Concerning the gospel, those Jews are your what? Thank you. Well, what's that got to do with anything? You want to hear something to blow your mind? And watch, I'm for the Jew. My book is all pro-Israel, but it's not crazy lopsided. A false balance is an abomination unto the Lord. You've got to take the enemy part as well as the beloved part. That crowd over there can't handle the beloved part. This crowd over here has a rough time with the enemy part. They want to stone the Apostle Paul when they read stuff like that. Don't go too crazy. It's my job to kind of help the body of Christ get a little perspective on this, the scriptural position. Let me give you an example. The Jew is so powerful, God has gifted him. He was supposed to be running this world 2,000 years ago. The millennium should have been here when the Lord arrived. But they rejected him, and they're gifted. And they're spinning their wheels for 20 centuries now. Anywhere they go, they pretty much can take over anything. You know why Gentiles hate Jews so much? Because Gentiles love money and Jews know how to make it. Say amen. <laughs> That's exactly the truth. 
Deuteronomy said God gave them power to get wealth. They got to have their ability to run forever. They're on the run for 2,000 years from part, this part of the world to that part of the world. They're always running. And, they, and their, their specialty is their jewelry because they can take that with them. They can't drag their real estate with them. Ladies, I forget. What's the first three letters of jewelry? I can't remember. How do you spell that? And uh, this Jew one time came into, a, came into a, a little village, you know, and the mayor met him. He said, wait a minute, we don't allow any Jews in our village. You know what that Jew said? That's why it's still a village. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I mean, so they're powerful people, and they messed up. Now look, their power in any part of the world where they've been before to, to rattle things is always, don't miss it, you'll learn something profound here. I'll prove my point. It has always been disproportionate to their number. In other words, they're only a small percentage of people, but they always have so much more power overwhelming in, in, in contrast to their number. For instance, hello, ready for this? The, the Jewish population of the United States is about 2%. That's all. But it's 33% of the highest court in the land. Three Jews on the Supreme Court tonight. All three are liberal. Start with Ruth Gator Ginsburg, you know, sleeps through everything, and she hates Trump's guts. All three liberal Jews, two years, three years ago, joined two liberal Catholics and shot down traditional marriage. That's what that verse is talking about. It's crazy. Uh, anybody ever hear of a good Jewish boy named Car uh, Karl Marx? He didn't do anything too, too significant. He just founded communism. Uh, how about, here's another, here's an, you, do you know why the, the young people in our country don't know what bathrooms to use anymore and don't know what they are even, if they're male or female? You know who caused all that? Another Jew named Sigmund Freud. You ever heard of him? One of his letters was discovered one time. He said, we're bringing America the plague. Good Jewish boy. Um, you know um, uh, what David Berkowitz told me in prison? He said, the two, he said the two main things that got me, he's shooting people all over New York because a dog is talking to him. That's the nickname, Son of Sam. His next door neighbor's name was Sam, and that man had a dog. And, and Berkowitz was communicating with the dog. He was out in left field in a terrible satanic drug cult. He said, Bill, the things that, two things that the devil used to get me strung out in Satanism were one, watching uh, Rosemary's Baby, the movie, when I was about 14. Moms and dads, keep your eye on your kids, amen? They got things a thousand times worse now than Rosemary's Baby, believe me. And blah, blah, blah. So what's the second thing? He said, reading Anton LaVey's Satanic Bible. Who's Anton LaVey? He's the Jew that founded the first church of Satan in San Francisco. And he wrote the Satanic Bible. Jerry Springer and Howard Stern, they make a couple of good Sunday school workers, wouldn't they? Good Jewish boys. How much time you got? Uh, you ever heard of Sarah Silverman? She's one of the top comedians in the whole country tonight. Jewish woman. Go get on your phone. Get on your little telephone and Google her big uh, show she did up in the New York State someplace. And uh, her, 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 the line dropped, brought the house down. I got the exact quote in the book. Uh, they said Jesus Christ, here's the quote, they said Jesus Christ killed the Jews. If he didn't, I'd effing do it again in a second, she said. And the whole room goes crazy laughing. What are you going to do? And don't forget Wiener. Thank God for Wiener. 
it wasn't for Wiener, Trump wouldn't have got elected. Two days before the election, they reopened his uh, case of sexting a 15-year-old. Remember that? His wife's computers were linked up with Hillary Clinton, all that baloney. You all remember that? I know our brains are about blown out anymore with stuff. But uh, that's the way that stuff goes. Now, listen, uh, those, uh, those Jews are not all bad people either. No way are they all bad. Aren't you glad that a Jewish doctor named Jonas Salk invented the polio vaccine? That was a pretty good thing, wasn't it? And uh, aren't you glad that uh, we have a country tonight? Where did America come from? You go down to Wacker Drive in Chicago, you'll see a gigantic statue down there of George Washington uh, standing there and uh, with two people standing next to him. A statue over here of Alexander Hamilton, the first Secretary of the Treasury, and on this side, a statue of this guy right here, Heim Salman the Jewish banker who bankrolled the entire American Revolution for George Washington. $603,000 in that day's money out of his own pocket, never got paid back a nickel, died broke in his 30s. That's where America came from, a Jewish banker. So, see, you don't get off balance. This group can't handle any of that stuff. This group can't handle any of the negative stuff. Uh, you know what, uh, you know uh, anybody, <laughs> look, every year at pastor school, Dr. Howes would end the, the, the deal with singing what? God Bless America. Remember that song? It was the 100th anniversary of that song uh, last month. You know who wrote that? Same guy that wrote White Christmas. A Jew. Irving Berlin. And on and on it goes. So, uh, hey, look, Jerry Lewis, he was a very filthy guy in, in his personal life. Terrible. But he spent 50 years trying to help handicapped children. See, that Jew is cr crazy. He swings either way. And you ladies remember that little, uh, uh, little poem or saying about the little girl with the curl. You all remember that crazy thing? The little girl with the curl, when she was good, she was very, very good. But when she was bad, she was horrid. That's the Jew. It's incredible, okay? Now, so watch this. Now it comes time to, uh, I got I to gotta get you all back so you'll buy books. Right now you're sitting out there stunned right now. Did Hooker, Brother Hooker know who he has coming in there tonight? He got the biggest anti-Semitic I've ever heard of. Hey, stay with me. Now let me win you all back. I'm here to help you. When I preach in North Carolina, I'll be there at the end of next week. Every time I go there, they say, Brother Grady's here to help us. And when I leave, they say, he really hoped us. <laughs> so I'm here to help you. You ready? Now, let me show you why you're a little, you know, a little grizzled a little bit. That's good. First of all, it shows you're not in that group. The nut, the nut group, right? I mean, you know, they're not grizzled. They, you know, they live in this stuff. So that's a good sign. But you want to know why you, you feel uncomfortable hearing bad things about Jews, even if they're true? You're ready to stone Paul for telling you they're your enemies? And why you gravitate to all things Jewish or Israel, and especially the Hebrew language, if you hear it quoted? You go into a trance. You know, compared to Arabic. All right? You ready? You ready? Don't fall out of your pew when I tell you this. This is beautiful. Some church member in New Jersey told me this. Guy with bib overalls one night, about 60, 70-year-old dude, and I, I never got over it. Blew me totally away. He said, Brother Bill, you know why we all feel positive toward Jews and we don't like hearing negative things about them? I said, why? He said, it's because we got a Jew inside of us. Paul told the Colossian church, Christ in you, the hope of glory. You Gentiles, don't feel like you're second fiddle to the Jews. You've got the Jewish Messiah inside of you. You're okay. That's, see, that's the natural thing to love the Jew. 
It's not natural. It's abnormal now to hate the Jew. Hey, isn't that funny how that fits in with everything else going on in the last days, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3? In the last days, perilous times shall come. And you got 17 things laid out there. One of them is without natural affection. Hello, women, is it normal for a mother to abort her own child? That's not normal, is it? Is it normal, men, for a father to shoot his wife and kids and then shoot himself? Supposed to protect his family? It's not normal to hate that Jew either. It's an end day weirdness. Uh, what did it say? Uh, Lest you be wise in your own conceits, right? Okay, so watch this. We're halfway through the message. Here's the main thought for you to get at this point. Here's the deal. That Jew, this group over here, preaches replacement theology. God has replaced Israel with the church. And by the way, you, you, really, you really need to understand how good you, might, you have it. You might not know it. I don't know. But you could be sitting out in one of these other congregations hearing all this baloney being taught to these people now. And I'll give you one example. I got into a phone conversation with one of these nuts. A guy who pastors a church in Illinois, King James Only Church, just like this. And he's trying to convert me over to this junk. And I said to him on the phone, I said, nothing personal. Man. I, was, I was in that parking lot for Jimmy John's, trying to go in and get a turkey sub. And man, I was hungry, and he had tied me up, and I wanted to get off the phone in the worst way. And I finally said to him, I said, man, nothing personal, but can't you read? Romans 11 says, and so all Israel shall be saved. Can't you read that? Do you know what that pastor of a King James Independent Only Baptist Church said to me on the phone? He said, oh, I believe that verse. We're Israel. Can you imagine putting your hard-earned tithe and offerings in the plate, showing up for visitation, doing whatever you do around there, trying to be faithful, coming in every way, and sitting here and hearing Brother Hooker telling you you're the new Israel tonight? I mean, God's been good to you at least that way, isn't it? So, here's the deal. So here's the deal. That group teaches replacement theology. The true position is not replacement theology. The true Bible position is easy to remember because it also starts with an R. It's restoration theology. Not this, it's restoration. One day God is going to restore that Jew to his land. He did that 70 years ago last May. Physically to the land. But the big part is so God can restore, you have to be in the land to get to them. The second part is the spiritual restoration to the Lord at the end of the tribulation period, and so all Israel shall be saved. First back to the land, and then back to himself. That's what restoration theology means. The right position is to believe that, not the other crazy thing. And if you want to be balanced, you've got to be able to handle, you know, all the, uh, all the baggage. You know, and yes, I know they start around Hollywood. Yeah, they run the pornography. Yeah, they're the, they got the neocons, got us in all the Middle East wars. I understand that. Yeah, look, there. Is there anything else? Is that it? Okay, I got it. What, do you want me to hate them now because of this list? I love them because I'm told to love them, and I know they're messed up. What's next? That's the position you're supposed to have. And, and listen, by the way, another weakness the good guys have, the good pro-Israel group has, besides being a little naive, the other bad problem is they, they, they tend to uh, not witness to the Jews sometimes. Hey, I'll give you an illustration. I was in Texas, I mentioned. I was in San Antonio. I was in Beeville, Texas for two nights, staying on a ranch that a friend of mine owns, 4,000-acre ranch. He took me out in this truck the next day after I got there, driving all around. He said, hey, Bill, see all the cattle over there? He said, guess who owns those cattle? I said, who? He said, John Hagee. 
the charismatic preacher you see on TV that loves Israel all the time, right? Hey, when we moved the embassy to Jerusalem, they had him closing prayer or opening prayer, I forget which. You know? You all know what, most of you know what I'm talking about? I said, Hagee's cattle. I said, does he have a ranch down here? He said, he, he owns an 8,000 acre ranch. I said, what in the world is that thing worth? He said, about 40 million. You know what I told him? I said, I'm in the wrong denomination. Say amen right there. <laughs> but he, you know what Hagee says? Hagee says, we don't try to convert the Jews. They have their own covenant. We're just trying to get, you know, sending missiles over there and jet, F-15 jets. And, but we don't ever give a track out to anybody. They got their own covenant with God. Don't you think somebody should have got Hagee's material to the Apostle Paul? He could have saved himself a bunch of lumps and bumps in those synagogues. Trying to win those Jews to Christ. He, you know, he, he was out to lunch, you know? Now, long story short, so you see the position is, we believe God's going to restore that Jew one day, and we accept him with all his baggage. We know he's our enemy, but we love him anyway. That's the position of the Bible, right? Now, turn in your Bible to 2 Timothy. I've got two verses for this sermon, and that's it. 2 Timothy chapter 2 real quick. Did God make a promise? And so all Israel shall be saved. There shall come to the deliver, right? That's coming in the future. Now, here's the question. Is God's word any good? When the Lord says he's going to do something, can you trust him? See? All right. Look at verse uh, 12, 2 Timothy 2. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us, not a place in heaven, but a significant role in the millennial kingdom, which is a part of our reward structure. Here's the verse I want you to see. Look at verse 13. If we believe not, yet he abideth what? Faithful. Here it comes. He cannot what? You think God's word is good? He makes a promise. Is he going to make good on it? Did he say all Israel would be saved? You think he's going to do that? There's the point, right? You, all, you old timers, remember those bumper stickers from the 70s? God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Those three little phrases on the bumper sticker, remember that? And remember another one, another version came out after that? Same three expressions, but the middle one was crossed out. Remember that? God said it, that settles it. Who gives a flip whether you believe it or not? That's what that verse is saying. Romans 10, 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you ever do that when there was some conviction involved? I don't mean you went up there in a mob youth camp, you know, with 50 people praying a prayer, and you wanted to have a testimony like everybody else. I didn't mean that. I mean, God dealt with you, and you knew you were, you were lost, and you got saved, you were under conviction. You all remember that? Well, guess what? If you don't feel saved 30 years later, you're still saved. That's what that verse means. Uh, Lester Olo, if you get into that Second Peter chapter 1 deal context, um, uh, he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. You may have forgotten, but he hasn't forgotten. He's faithful. If we, if we believe not, he abides faithful. Uh, Lester Roloff used to say Jesus didn't have the hiccups. Uh, he didn't say he had to be born again and again and again. And by the way, a lot of good Christians struggle with that. That's no, my wife, a lot of people do over the years. All, a lot of Christians have had that problem. Don't let that get to you. you. Remember, Satan's job is to make saved people think they're lost, and lost people think that they're saved. That's right. And the, the best verse for you to look at if you're ever stumbling around about that stuff is 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Look at it later, where it says, No man can call Jesus Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. What does that mean? Ask yourself one simple question. If you're stumbling, hot and cold, double-minded, what if you could have anything you want? Would you like the Lord to run your life? Would you like Him to be the Lord of your life if you could have anything you want? 
your deep down heart desire, you'd say yes. How could you not be a saved person? No man can call Jesus Lord but by the Holy Ghost. No lost person wants God running their life. Are you kidding? Okay, so here's the deal. Here's the deal. God said He's going to take care of that Jew. Now watch. The whole point of my sermon now is pivoting right here. Here's where I'm trying to get you to see one truth tonight. God said that all Israel would be saved. He said that in 60 A.D. Hey man, 1900 years later he must still have that promise in mind because he finally brought the Jews back to their land and they got a dark future in front of them. But he's going to save them, he's going to save them. Here's the key, don't miss it. He's going to do like the painting out there, which is where I got the cover of that book, that burning bush, it burns but it's not consumed, major picture of the, of the Jew. Here's the deal, don't miss it. God's going to do all that stuff, keep that Jew alive for 2,000 years, through all that persecution through Europe, through that terrible uh, tribulation, I mean the Holocaust period, 42 months where 6 million Jews are slaughtered. Watch it. Don't miss the 42 months. That's how many months they had Jesus showing up in person and they rejected Him. That's how long the great tribulation is going to be the second half. You know, he, you know the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want to keep that in mind. Watch it. And then he's going to keep them alive all the way through that crazy tribulation period until he finally rescues them at the end. And we're going to be with him. Amen? Coming down wearing our wedding dresses. Amen? <laughs> Imagine yourself on a white horse with a wedding dress on. And, and you know what? You know what, you, know who, you know what we're doing? We're coming down. You're going to fall out of your chair when I tell you this. You know what we're doing? We're coming down to rescue our mother-in-law. <laughs> Can anybody put that together? You understand Jehovah and Israel are married and now they're divorced and they're going to get back together again. You understand who Jesus is? That's, that's Jehovah's son, who's our husband. Do the math, amen. That'll end all the mother-in-law jokes. Glory to God and the Lamb. Stephen Anderson's messing with Jehovah's wife. Okay, now here's the deal. God is going to do all those things we just said, right? Are you ready, neighbor? He's going to do all of that. Here's the key to the whole sermon. Whether or not those Jews want anything to do with them. If we believe not, yet he abides faithful. And the same thing goes for that lost Jew. Which brings us back to the naive Christians again. Remember, we're naive. Christians are suckers for so many things. You know, they always get, you know, and they go on the Holy Land tours with the Jewish guide. The guide always gets saved right before the tip. They get saved on every bus, didn't you know that? <laughs> Don't look at me like that. I know I've been to Israel five times. The Arabs are just as bad, eh? But listen, the Christians are naive. Give me a break. Anybody remember that crazy story about the microphone down in hell? They lowered it down a mine shaft in Siberia and they picked up the screams and they recorded it. Did you ever hear that? Every preacher in America has preached that. I'm the only one that hasn't. <laughs> If you took that crazy story back to my neighborhood in New York and went into Gracie Square Coffee Shop run by a bunch of uh, Greeks and you told them that story, you know what that dude would say with the guy with the apron, you know, and the hairy chest and the 50,000 chains so they could know where to stop shaving, amen? And, 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 and he, he's not as smart as you. He doesn't see the Bible. You told him that story, you know what, you know what they'd say? <laughs> they'd say, uh, how come the heat didn't burn the wires? <laughs> you know, it's the Christians. They don't think about stuff like that. <laughs> And so here we go again with the naive Christians now, ready? About that Jew. Watch it. The average Christian says to himself, well, I know the Jews don't accept Jesus, but at least they believe in uh, God the Father, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Ready? Ready? Wrong! Sorry, wrong. Read the statistics. 
80% of the Jews in the world are secular Jews. That's a nice way of saying atheists. Guy that wrote the afterward to my book, Sam Cohen was an atheist. He's a physicist. He couldn't even begin to believe in God. That's how it is. Sad. And listen, the number one excuse the Jews use for being atheists, you learn something, if I give you this quote, I mean, for good, you know, bump up some insight. You know what they all say sooner or later if you pin, try to pin them down? They say, our God died in the Holocaust. That's the line they always use. Isn't that a good one? In other words, if there was a God, how could he let the Holocaust happen? Man, that's no less pharisaical than all that gas about the school, school shootings. Where was the Lord at? He's been thrown out of the school system since the 1960s. What do you mean, where was the Lord? Those Jews have been just as anti-Jehovah before the Holocaust as they were afterwards. You understand? Now watch. So then the, the naive Christian sometimes can say, well, uh, at least the 20% that are religious Jews, at least they read the Bible, right? The whole th they don't read the New Testament, but they read the Old Testament, right? Ready? Wrong again. Why would unsaved Jews read the Old Testament when your unsaved Catholic neighbors won't read the New Testament? They get under conviction if they read that. They can't understand it unless they're looking for God. You know what the Jews read? They read some crazy collection of commentaries. You hear of it from time to time called the Talmud. It's about 25 volumes of uh, commentary written by crazy rabbis over the century. You ever see Fiddler on a Roof, that nutty rabbi sitting there with the hair out there trying to figure out how many flies can balance on a corn cob or some crazy thing, looking at the, okay. So they're not religious either. They're secular atheists as a group. Okay, Golda Meir, you remember her, the first female prime minister of Israel during the Yom Kippur War? She was a school teacher in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. She's an atheist. She's a socialist, like Bernie Sanders, a Jew, socialist. Her famous quote was, I am a socialist and therefore I cannot believe in God. So they don't believe in God. So here's the deal. God says, I'm going to save them even though they don't believe in me. Now, I'll show you a classic uh, picture here. Most people have seen this photograph. This was taken on May 14th, 1948, when they're declaring, the, when Israel's declaring its independence. So here's a picture of the first prime minister of Israel in a big ceremony in Tel Aviv, in a museum. He's standing behind a table. All the future ministers of Israel are seated behind him. He's got a microphone there, and he's reading this document here, which is the Declaration of Independence, reading it live over the radio at 4 o'clock, declaring their independence. It will go into effect at midnight. And at midnight, you, here's the pictures of all the Jews outside dancing, you know, you know they're celebratory, you know, you know, jumping around, excited at midnight. And then by 1230, the Egyptian bombers are already hitting Tel Aviv, and the War of Independence is on. Five nations have just invaded them. Now, people see that picture and are familiar with it. But what they don't know is what was going on early that morning, which is a mind-blowing truth. I've got 3,000 footnotes in my new book. Peter Jennings used to say, if you hear a rumor your mother loves you, check it out. Every, I don't have fake news in my book. It's all documented. Israeli historians confirm what I'm going to tell you right now. You know what was going on early that morning? They were arguing behind the curtain over one last decision that had not been made yet. And that was whether they were going to put the ancient name of God of Israel in their founding document. Eighty percent said, forget about it. We don't want any reference to any kind of deity. The 20% religious crowd was screaming for Jehovah and the Almighty God of Israel. And about 2 o'clock or whenever, they came up with a compromise. And the secular Jews thought it was funny, and they accepted it because they could get into it and make a little uh, 
cutesy turn on it because the, 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 what they came up with for a name for the Lord was Rock of Israel. Their evolutionist tree huggers worship the ground. That could be talking about the, the ground of Israel itself without a deity. Okay, let the Jews, let the religious nuts have that bone, we'll throw it to them. The, the religious Jews thought that was blasphemy. Ben Gurion said, hey man, it's showtime at four o'clock, we gotta do something. So they came to a compromise, and the God of Israel was re relegated to the term Rock of Israel in the Declaration of Independence. You can hear it right over the internet tonight. If you pull it up, it's being read in Hebrew. You can't hear, understand it, but you can hear them reading it. Now look, if you want to see how messed up that Jew is, how stiff-necked he is, there are five armies on the frontier when they're arguing about that that are going to come crashing in at midnight. Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, and Egypt's coming up from the coast. And that's what they're fighting about, to keep their, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob out of their document. Sorry, I got the footnotes on it. Here's the amazing part. You know what God said? I don't give a flip. I'm still going to save those dipsticks. Do you understand? I'm trying to get you to see it you know, from a very simple, practical perspective. Say it. Now, how God did it is the miracle of all miracles. It's the main thing I'll leave you with tonight because it's a story that you won't even begin to believe, okay? But it's so, such a, a major story that there was a book written about it and Hollywood made a major film about it and most Christians have never heard the story one time. And I'll close with this story, it's crazy. So, David Ben-Gurion, the little Prime Minister of Israel, four foot 11 inches tall, white hair shooting out of his head like uh, Einstein. He's an, he, he, he's an atheist, but he's not stupid. He knows they're in trouble. They're gonna get wiped out at midnight. It's, if it was five armies to one army, that would have been bad enough odds. But it's five armies to zero. They don't have a standing army. The, the British were in control of Palestine from 1921 to 1948. They didn't allow the Jews so much as to carry guns to protect themselves from the Arabs. And they loved the Arabs. The British didn't have hated the Jews. Uh, the, uh, all the Jews had to protect themselves were illegal underground militias. You hear about some of their names, the Haganah, you ever heard of that? Or the Ergon, or the Stern Gang, or the Izel. And these underground militia groups, ready? They fought themselves. They killed each other over weapons. It's a crazy, am I right, Brother Williams? It's the craziest thing. Listen, the old, uh, Paul told you about that in 1 Thessalonians. He said the Jews are contrary to all men. The old expression is if you have two Jews, you have three views, amen? One time, uh, one time Harry Truman had, this, uh, had, had a visit from Ben Gurion at the White House about 1949 after all the smoke was cleared. And Truman's making, he loved the Jews, Truman did, he's making small talk with Ben Gurion. He said, it must be a great honor being the first pr uh, prime minister of the state of Israel, Mr. Ben Gurion. You know what he said to him? He said, Mr. President, I am prime minister of 500,000 prime ministers. <laughs> <laughs> So, so Ben Gurion's in trouble, right? So here's what he does. He sends a, 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 he sends a delegation. Brother, you want to see some? You see the crowd? Look, this is a, probably a longer sermon than you might be used to. Brother Hooker's a nice guy, but he's shallow. Don't tell him I told you that. Don't tell him I said that, but we are good friends, amen? <laughs> he's a good boxer, though, I'm going to tell you that. But all kidding aside, I mean, everybody's glued in, and I appreciate that. It only took me 18,000 hours to put this together, and now I'm cherry-picking it down to just an hour for you, whatever. Be a blessing. 
But I promise you, the ending will send you into next week. You have no idea where this is going to end. Okay? I'm trying to sell books tonight. I'll, 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 I'll even make up stuff if I have to. <laughs> so, but you're not going to believe where this ends. So Ben-Gurion, he's in trouble. You know what he does? He sends a delegation to the Pentagon in America. You never hear of this story. To beg for some military advisor to go over there to save them from getting wiped out at midnight when the state comes into existence. One man volunteers. He's an American colonel, a Jew, of course, from the Lower East Side of New York, where all Jews come from, amen. His name is David Marcus. His nickname is Mickey, David Mickey Marcus. This guy is, all you gotta know about him is he was the top man in the Pentagon. He's a colonel, not a general, but he was the br most brilliant man in America at that time. In, in, he was in JAG, you know, the legal end of the Pentagon. He, let me tell you about him real quick. He graduated from West Point with high, high marks, high honors, right? All you men. He was a man's man. He was the light heavyweight boxing champion at West Point under Douglas MacArthur. Had a knockout punch like nobody's business, they said. And he learned how to box in the streets of New York. Growing up, no, they didn't have any no-bully zones, amen? <laughs> Say amen to that one, homeschoolers. All right, you better toughen that kid up or he's going to be in trouble someday. Yeah, I'm telling you, neighbor. That's free, amen? And I homeschooled my three kids. Now, and here you go. Watch this one now. He was a real amazing man. When he got out of West Point, he went to Brooklyn Law College, earned a law degree. Then he became a judge in New York, the youngest judge in the history of New York judicial history. Uh, watch this one. When Pearl Harbor gets bombed, they reactivate his commission. They sent him to, per they sent him to Hawaii to train the 101st Airborne for the D-Day invasion. After three years, they have D-Day takes place, June 6, 1944. Uh, My father-in-law was, was in the second wave in the infantry in the 29th Division, and while they're storming the beaches, the, right, right prior to that, the 101st Airborne hit France. When, that, when they jumped, Marcus snuck away from his desk job in the Pentagon, where they pretty much had him chained because he's a, you know, he's the, he was it, he's the man. He's so smart, they had him write the surrender documents for the German government to sign. That's how smart this Jew was. Imagine God using a Jew to have the Nazis sign his surrender documents. I got a footnote on that. All those big conferences you see, like Yalta, you know, Stalin and Churchill and Roosevelt sitting there. He's right at Roosevelt's arm in the, during the negotiations. He's the top legal mind in America. Can I, is that enough? Put it that way. He sneaks away and jumps with the 101st Airborne because he wanted to fight those Jews for killing his relatives. Hey, they went nuts when they found out what happened. They sent a three-star general looking for him. They, the guy finally found him, you know, and he gave him a good cussing. What the blankety-blank are you doing here, Marcus? He said, I got lost. <laughs> they booted him back to the Pentagon, you know, with a stern reprimand. This is the ultimate man's man. The whole movie's written about, made about it and a whole book written about it. Look here, preacher, there he is. A real man's man. Now, I'm going somewhere. And you want to hear how funny this is? When he jumped on D-Day, are you ready for this neighbor? That was the first time he'd ever jumped out of an airplane. And he trained 8,000 paratroops and he wouldn't go out himself. How in the world do you do that? He said, well, just jump through that door and yank on that thing on your shoulder here and yell Geronimo and everything will be all right. That's what he did. Okay, so... In the film, by the way, the book is called Cast a Giant Shadow. That's the title of the film. Oh, that's the book. The movie is the same title. All the big Hollywood stars wanted to be in this movie. John Wayne, Frank Sinatra, Yul Brenner. Kirk Douglas plays the main character, David Marcus. And Kirk Douglas is a Jew in real life. 102 years old. 
My man is still alive. Spartacus! And they're getting ready to put his son in the nursing home. That's how old Kirk Douglas is. But he was, he was the role of Colonel Marcus in the movie. It's amazing. I think they made it back in the 70s. But, but here's in the film, you see, true to life, true to the book, you see John Wayne acting as his you know, superior officer, trying to talk him out of volunteering. Mickey, what do you want to throw your career away for? Go to some dustbin, distant part of the world, get involved in some political mess, wreck your career, blah, 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 maybe. He said, you don't understand, you know, they're not killing your relatives over there, they're killing mine, you know. And so you see John Wayne and Kirk Douglas shaking hands in the movie, where they finally come to an agreement that the Pentagon will let Marcus go. But under two conditions, don't forget the British are still in charge. This is before they leave. Two conditions, what are they, preacher? Number one, he's got to go over with a fake passport. Construction worker, fake name. And number two condition, if he gets caught, you know, by the British, more than likely, right? Ready? We never heard of you. And they shake hands. That's in January. The next month, in February, Marcus shows up in Palestine as a construction worker. They won't let him bring one military manual with him. He's got to create an army in three months with a bunch of crazy people fighting themselves. How, so what's he do? He's a Jew. What do you mean, what does he do? He recreates five military manuals from photographic memory. Go, you got to buy the book and read it. Even see the film. Watch it. Long story short, he goes over there. They make him a brigadier general, a Hebrew, a Hebrew title they give him, aloof. They had not had one for 2,000 years. He's like a mystical character to those Jews over there. They're looking at him as the man that's going to save them. And all this is 150% true. In the movie, they got him having a, a girlfriend over there, having an affair on his wife. That was typical Jewish Hollywood baloney to make money. He was very loyal to his wife in real life. I read, I read all about this stuff. Long story short, watch it. So he gets over there and he tells these guys how to do everything right, trains them all, three months time. Boom, midnight comes, May 15th, the war starts at 12.30 in the morning, and everything he taught them to do worked. By four weeks' time, they had the Arabs on the run. It's a miracle. All out of rat patrol stuff, uh, you know, hit and run stuff, uh, you know, uh, uh, guerrilla warfare type stuff, all that stuff. But it worked. Watch it. As soon as the Arabs are getting beat real bad, what happens? What always happens? The UN jumps in and stops everything when the bad guys are on the run. And they set up a ceasefire to stop everything. Now, watch this. He has saved the nation, pretty much, from the invasion. But, the, but, but what's the other major thing the book and the movie point out is that Jer even though the nation has been saved, Jerusalem is surrounded by the Arabs. And the Jews that are there are being starved to death. There's only one road that goes into Jerusalem, up into Jerusalem. And all the high ground paralleling the main highway, I think it's Highway 1, are all these gun emplacements up there. When the British left the country, they turned them all over to the Arabs. And now the Jews are cut off. They can't get supplies into their own capital. And the Jews are starving in there, right? So what David Marcus does, because he's so brilliant, there's like a big ravine valley here. Over here, there's some more high ground, like leading into Jerusalem through a back way. He finds a goat path, of all things. Brings in three or four engineers, half a dozen bulldozers. And in two weeks or so, 10 days, preacher, they build an emergency secondary road. I mean, it's all supernatural stuff. 
And it's such a scary road, they named it the Burma Road, it's so scary that Marcus has to get into the lead truck on the first trial run to show him we can make it, you know? You'll see it all in the film. Two days before the ceasefire goes into effect, 40 trucks break through and they literally save the city. They make a big deal about that in the book and the movie. Now, watch this. The, the truce is going into effect at 7 in the morning. Let's back up five hours now, 2 in the morning. David Marcus and his officers are bivouacked in a Catholic monastery a mile outside of Jerusalem. Of all crazy things, preacher, right where that Elvis Presley statue is. It's that same Arab village, Abu Ghush. Watch it. Two o'clock in the morning, he gets up. He's, he's not the number one general. He's the number one military advisor. They're all listening to anything he suggests. He gets up at two in the morning to use the latrine. He steps out of his barracks. It's a cool night. So he puts a sheet over his head, white sheet, and heads out this way, passes the sentry, talks to him a few minutes, and then goes on over, uh, climbs over a stone wall about here, and then disappears out into the darkness for about 40 minutes. Then he comes back. When he comes back, there's a different sentry on duty who came on duty 15 minutes or so earlier than he was supposed to, and has no clue who this figure is coming to him with a sheet on his head. He doesn't know it's the commanding advisor that had warned all the sentries everywhere, keep your eyes open the last 24 hours, the Arabs might pull something at the last minute. It's a 19-year-old Russian Jew who can't speak English like the other sentry did. And he sees that figure coming, he yells in Hebrew for the password. As brilliant as Marcus is, he doesn't know Hebrew, he knows Yiddish, which is a pig Latin, pig Hebrew form. Of, of, pardon the pun, but uh, you know, it's, it, it's uh, you know what I mean? You all know what Yiddish is? <laughs> Watch Judge Judy if you don't know what Yiddish is. You'll pick up about 10 Yiddish words every, every week. I like Judge Judy. My wife and I watch her every night when I'm home. <laughs> Ready? He's coming back, and he doesn't know who this dude is. That guy doesn't know who he is. And when he yells in Hebrew, Marcus yells back in English, I'm Colonel Marcus. That kid gets nervous can't understand what he's saying, fires a shot up in the air, a warning shot. That spooks Marcus, he dies for cover behind a tree, and that kid fires a second bullet and puts a round right through his heart and kills him on the spot. And the nation went into convulsions exactly the way the Confederacy did when Stonewall Jackson was killed by his own man. And see this crowd over here, preacher Stephen Anderson, ding dong, the witch is dead, that's their attitude. They think that's great. And you and I are the same school here. How sad can you get? You ought to look at your faces out here. That's as sad as it gets, man. The whole nation went nuts. One of the saddest pictures I have in that book, 200 photographs, is the picture of Marcus's casket being carried out of the morgue in Israel and put on a plane with an Israeli flag over it, and they fly it to New York for his state funeral, and everybody and anybody stuffed themselves under that plane. Uh, Moshe Dayan, remember him? and Ben-Gurion and everybody that could fit in that plane. Big state funeral, governor of New York, mayor of New York, secretary of the treasury representing uh, uh, the, the, the White House, uh, Morgenthau, a Jew. Sad, sad thing. And uh, Brother Williams, when it's over, you see the motorcade, when the funeral's over, the motorcade going up to the point to bury Marcus in West Point. You won't get a sadder story. Listen. I've been to his grave. 
I have a photograph of his grave in the book. It says, David Marcus, a soldier for all humanity, it says. You go to West Point, you say where that door is in there, in the corner where that back door next to the PA booth is. Maybe that's about where the grave is, right there, right? Watch, I'm going somewhere. The guide at West Point will tell you that is the most unique grave site in the whole cemetery because it's the only American soldier buried in there who died fighting under a foreign flag. Star of David. Oh, by the way, did I tell you what his fake name was on his fake passport? Take a guess who the Rock of Israel used to save his own stiff-necked people because he cannot deny himself. Michael Stone. <laughs> the Rock used the stone. Like that other guy, that other David did with his stone. Took that other giant out. And by the way, even Michael is a unique name because that's the archangel in Daniel that stands up for Israel. Okay, I'm done with my sermon here. Every sermon has a closing illustration normally, right? So does a book. When I was in that cemetery, staring at that grave, and what a strange place it was. God gave me the closing illustration for my book. And I mean 18,000 hours worth of work, this is where it ends, in that cemetery. Because if that over there is where Marcus is buried, that same guide, if you get one, will take you over here. There's two, there's two tombstones, or headstones right here, look. And you know what they'll tell you? They'll tell you this is the second most unique grave site in this whole cemetery, which by the way, is a hundred years older than Arlington. George Armstrong Custard, buried about right here, and all these men you heard about. You'll never believe in a million year, who, years who's buried over here. They have a whole book written about the two people buried here. You can buy the book in the bookstore at West Point. And I'll close with this. In the 1800s in New York, there was a Donald Trump. His name was Henry Warner, big investor, big shot. Had to own a big townhouse in Manhattan. Watch it. He owned properties everywhere. His wife died. He had two teenage girls. That's the key to this closing story. Uh, Suzanne and Anna Warner. The younger one is the key, Anna Warner, and I'm done with this. His wife had died, and, and he had a, a nanny or somebody or some relative helping him rear these girls, right? Watch it now. Over here where West Point comes to an end here, Cannon's over here, here's the Hudson River right here, watch it. There's an island right there, 200 acres, very small. You could take a rock and throw it and hit the island probably from West Point's shoreline. He buys that island from the private owner that owned it. He's going to invest in it, build a hotel there. Before he can do that, he loses all his money overnight in a big financial panic, the financial panic of 1830 or something, one of those disasters prior to the big depression in 29. He loses everything. All he's able to do, he has to sell his townhouse, everything. Somehow, all he's able to hold on to is that island. He is now forced to take his two daughters and whatever relative was helping them, rear them, and they move onto that island to have a roof over their head because there's no, else, no other place to live. You know, those girls started losing it fast. Their dad's going crazy, their mother had just died, and now their father has lost all his income, and they're living in Green Acres' house, you know, Eddie Albert. You know what happened to those girls? They start looking for God fast. They're not saved. And you know what happens? When you start looking for God, God will show himself, won't he? They both got saved in Manhattan at a Presbyterian church in a revival meeting. 
But man, like the black preacher would say, they got muchly saved. When they came home from that revival meeting, man, they had a touch of God on them. And, they had, and, and out of nowhere, God gave those two girls the ability to begin writing poetry and, and little songs and short stories. And because they were Christian teenage girls, the genre uh, became church youth groups. And their material went all over New York State and other places. And some of it started getting published where they were able to eke out a little bit of an income. Guess who never recovers? Their father never recovers. He'll eventually die. And these two teenage girls literally are becoming the breadwinners of that poor Warner family now. Watch it. I'm well past third base. I'm probably two feet from home plate, a foot from home plate now, and the message is over. Those girls, sooner after a while, became young, young Christian women. They were no longer young Christian teenagers. Then... Preacher, Brother Williams, they, they, then they're in their 30s. And it won't be long before they're in their 40s. And you know what? All the high society now starts laughing at those two women. Unclaimed blessings. They're in their 50s. No husbands. They weren't ugly like maybe the world might think. Here's the key girl right there. I mean, she, she's a pl plain looking person. I mean, We'll throw darts at her, uh, on a dartboard. I mean, she's all right, lady. No husbands, no children. And then, to make it worse, all these big investors started approaching those two girls wanting to buy Constitution Island to do what their father had wanted to do. They want to buy it from her, but they, but they won't sell it because they want to hold on to it for West Point. Because West Point wants it. But they can't give it to West Point because they have all this debt on their father's property. They, West Point can't pay off all the debt to get it. It's a catch-22. They know West Point wants it because it's very strategic. You remember a guy named Benedict Arnold? In the American Revolution, he tried to betray West Point to the British. George Washington had to have a big chain stretched from Constitution Island over to West Point to block British ships. Those girls wanted to give it to West Point, but they couldn't give it to them. In the meantime, they're offered all these off big offers to make them millionaires. And they turn it down over and over. Now the world's really laughing at them. No husbands, no children, and you idiots could be rich, though, and you're turning the money down. Anybody ever misjudge your character and your thinking and what you're trying to do and nobody understands it but you and God? Join the club. It's happened all the time. What do those girls do? Pretty soon they're in their 60s and their 70s. They don't give up. They keep on praying, keep on working, and how's the story end? You know, if you keep on rowing, you'll be in the fourth watch pretty soon. And if you keep on rowing, you, when you get to the fourth watch, you see Jesus coming out on the water. That's when he shows up. If you can hang on long enough, persevere, God will come through for you. Some Christian millionaire lady, of all things, finds out about him, a philanthropist. She's blown away at their situation. Long story short, she, she pours tons of money into their coffers to get their daddy's account back up in the black. And those ladies gladly, look, sign over Constitution Island in their will to West Point now. Because one Christian woman came through for them. Are you ready, neighbor? When those two ladies die, what do you think West Point did for them? Right here they are, Anna Warner and Susan Warner, side by side, about as far as from here to that exit sign maybe. That's where Marcus is buried, and here's where the girls are buried. And the West Point guide will say, 
Most unique gravesite there, only American buried here, died under a foreign flag. Number two unique site right here. The only non-military related civilians that are buried in this hallowed cemetery. Okay, I'm all done. So why'd you tell us that story? What's that got to do with your book? Oh, just one thing. You know what the guide will tell you? The same thing that the book will tell you. While all of New York society made fun of those two old biddies there, those old spinsters, those unclaimed blessings, dozens and hundreds of West Point cadets, the future generals, colonels, majors, captains of our army in our heyday of our country, would disagree with all those snide critics. And you know what they'll tell you? They had a, they had a tradition at West Point on Sunday afternoons dozens of cadets who were Christian cadets would row out to Constitution Island, little flotilla boats, to spend the afternoon with those two old biddies. They wanted to have a lunch with them, sometime they'd have tea with them. All the time though they would go over and have Bible studies with those ladies, those two old ladies. You know why? They wanted to see them in the worst way, but although they wanted to see both of them, they wanted to see the younger one even the most. And her name was Anna. Say, preacher, and I'm done with this. This is why I put this in the book. God gave this to me one day in the cemetery. I, I couldn't believe it. I found the book in the bookstore. Had no clue who this person was. Say, preacher, what's the deal? Here it is. End of the sermon. Why'd they want to see Anna Warner so bad? Because when those guys were young boys, they're from all different parts of the country, right? But they had one thing in common. Back in the 1800s, there was a song that was very popular. And look, are you ready, neighbor? It's very, you don't hear it sung today, and there's probably not two people in here in this whole room that would recognize it. You won't believe it, it's in this hymn book. And they all wanted to see the woman who wrote the song that they had sung as young people. And I'm done with this. Tell me if you've ever heard of this song. I bet you two people have heard it and that's it. Can you look it up for me? And I'm done exactly with this. Number one, page 187. Would you tell me if you recognize the song? We'll take a quick poll here. Now, you better, you better be careful. I'm a Yankee. You might not want to trust a Yankee as far as you could throw him. You know what I mean? Nathan Bedford Forrest used to say, come out with a white flag and then pull a gun out. You know what I mean? There's some Yankees are just as crooked. Uh, does anybody recognize this? Huh? How many of you grew up singing that song? May I see your hand? <laughs> Isn't that funny, preacher? I tricked everybody. Amen. I knew you all knew it. Now, here's the funny thing. I grew up in the Catholic Church singing Ave Maria about the Virgin Mary. I had that song at my, at my wedding. I never heard Jesus loved me until I was a grown adult, grown man. Hey, hasn't God been good to you? Hasn't God been good to you? Hey, listen. You know, you know what's the very last sentence in my last chapter of my book? The closing line of the book Marcus is buried there, and Anna Warner and her sister are buried over here. Here's the closing tie-in line. If you had Marcus's biography here, Cast a Giant Shadow, the book on the front cover, it says, this is the story of the man who died to save Jerusalem. Remember the, the caravan of trucks? The one who died to save Jerusalem's over there. You know who's buried here? The girl who wrote about the one who died to save Mickey Marcus and the whole world. Listen, isn't that something? Hasn't God been good to you? Are there more Baptists in Tennessee than there are people probably? <laughs> Has God been good to you? Hello, where are you going when you die? Where Anna Warner went? 
and her sister or where Marcus went? Sad, isn't it? I wish John Hagee was right, but I can't preach what I'd like to hear. So maybe that yogurt cone machine breaking at McDonald's this week wasn't the biggest burden after all of the week, was it? Maybe God's been good to us, hasn't he? What's the whole theme of the sermon tonight? If God promises he's going to do something, you can go to the bank on him, and he's going to do it. Amen? Hey, we're all done. Preacher, could we sing this in closing? Uh, why don't we turn to 187 and sing this song in closing? And I, I'd like my song leader to sing it. He's better than I could do it. And just thank God, how, just think of how good God has been to you while you're turning to, you got it all there? You know, uh, when Donald Trump was inaugurated, they had all those women out there screaming, protesting, remember that? And you had uh, President uh, Trump sitting there with his lost Catholic wife sitting next to him in that uh, ecumenical prayer service, remember? And Pence and his wife are sitting next to them, and they're both saved people. You remember that? All these crazy people they had, uh, Muslims and, and Mormons and everything. Then they brought a little 19-year-old Christian girl over who was blind. Remember that? And she got up there and she sang How Great Thou Art and brought the house down. They put the cameras on Melania Trump. She's crying. She stands up with a standing ovation. The place went nuts. You know, I read that girl's biography, 19-year-old blind girl. And when she was two years old, they said she's wandering around her house humming Jesus Loves Me before she could even talk. That's the influence from that woman's grave there all the way to the First Lady of the United States. loves me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells. Verse number two. Jesus loves me, he who died. Heaven's gates to open wide. He will wash away my sin. Let his little child come in. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me, he will stay close beside me all the way. Thou hast bled and died for me. I will henceforth live for thee. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so.
take up a love offering tonight. You can go ahead and be seated. Uh, guys, you can come on forward if you would, please. Lord, uh, we thank you now for uh, what we've heard tonight. Lord, we now pray that you'll bless this offering in Jesus' name. Amen. Wednesday, preacher will be back with us. We, do we have the camera off? Casey watches us. Can we shut it off? <laughs> not mutiny. We're, we're done. No, not mutiny. In case you are watching, it's not mutiny. We're good. All right. I was thinking about it last night when I pastored in, in Ghana, Kamasi. Uh, went on vacation, uh, came back, and uh, some of the people had made signs, some of the people had done different things. And when, when we walked in, when I walked in, or when the preacher comes to the platform, maybe some of you want to make a little sign, uh, we missed you, preacher, or something like that, and we can all give them a standing ovation. You know, we, we do that for people that hazard their lives, physical lives, but what about those who hazard their lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ? I just, I want, I want preacher to come back feeling like, he was missed and he was loved. Amen? Because he was. And uh, there's nothing you will do more to encourage your preacher than when he gets here, let him know how much you missed him. Amen? So verbally, of course, preacher, we miss you. But when he walks up to the platform, we're going to give him a big round of applause, standing ovation. All right? Amen. Brother Bob. Stand will be dismissed. Don't forget to go by the book table uh, out, out uh, in the foyer there. Terry, thanks for being here tonight. Appreciate you being here. And let's pray. And again, Lord, we thank you for this great day that you've given us. Lord, thank you for the many blessings that we've received from you today. Lord, thank you for that. Lord, we pray now that you'll just go with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.